0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning. You all awake? All right, everybody next week expect to see you at the first service, all right? Because you can do it. You've proven you can do it now. If you don't get that joke, you're not quite awake yet. We're glad that you're here. We're just singing this song that God will never let us down. Do you believe he's trustworthy? Yes. All right, good job. Because he is. Because there's nobody else who can say, oh, they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise three days later. I was telling the first service, I was, I was working on today's message yesterday, and I felt like God laid some stuff on my heart, so you probably hear some of this again on Easter Sunday. But I was like, if you like sports, there's one thing to make like a game-winning shot or a come-from-behind victory or whatever. It's another thing to call your own shot. And Jesus I mean, it's better. You can, like, get some dude that's like a golfer or whatever, and he's down by some strokes, coming to the 18th hole. He's like, I got it. I'm going to hit a 160-yarder for eagle. Don't worry about it. And you'd be like, that is incredible if you could do it. What Jesus did, he said, they're going to hand me over to the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law. They're going to crucify me. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Guess what happened? So Jesus is risen. Today's not Easter, but we celebrate every Sunday. Amen? All right, we're going to jump into Peter here in just a moment, but I want to tell you a couple things before we do. Uh, One thing is this, we're in a prayer initiative as a church, and so we're praying for revival in our own hearts when we started, praying for a future facility for us as a church, praying for the leaders of our church, praying for different things to happen, and right now until Easter in our prayer initiative, we're praying for our community, people we want to see come to know Jesus, people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior yet. If Jesus came right now, they'd be separated from God for all of eternity, and so we're praying for them, praying that they'll find a place, a gospel preaching place on Easter Sunday. Maybe for some of you that'll be in, people that you invite to come here. We're going to be over in the gym so that we have more seats, and, uh, and we'll, we're going to have a great time over there. It's going to be a special time. Uh, but I want to add one thing to praying. I know it's not praying for the community, but it's going to be praying in our church. Back in September, we did a member meeting, and I did some teaching on what is a deacon and talking about who could be deacons in our church, and we had you nominate some folks, those of you who are members, and uh, we've been working on that process. I know we haven't been saying a whole lot about it. We've got a group of guys. You can pray for these guys uh, on our elder team, just broken out. Dave Lenhart, Matt Nyhoff, Vern Kivett, John Reeves, and Tommy McFadder have all been working through the implementing and launching of our first deacon team. Our plan is that we're going to launch that team in April. Here's the prayer request. Not just that we have the right people and that God leads us the right people and all that stuff. But then those people are going to be stepping on into a ministry this church has never had before with proactive and reactive care. They're going to be stepping into some spiritual battle they've probably never faced before. So will you be praying for them? Because Satan doesn't want that to happen. He wants people to fall by the wayside. He wants people to make decisions and not get followed up with. He wants that to happen so that people will get destroyed. But God's got a better plan than that, and we believe that part of that's going to be the deacon. So will you be praying for them, please, as a church? And uh, we'll hear more about things that are happening at the end of the service and some announcements and whatnot. But right now, we're going to jump into 1 Peter. Like you saw from that video, we're doing this series through 1 Peter. Overarching theme of the whole book is this This place is not our home. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are not home yet. But God's got a plan for us while we're here. So we're going to ask God to reveal that to us this morning. You ready? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given us your truth. Thank you that you speak your word into our, you can take a letter from 2,000 years ago that's living and active and pierce our souls with it. Encourage our hearts with it. Think of the words that we sang in the song, that, that you are the wind in our sails, that you are our anchor, that you are what we long for. God, we don't just want your gifts, we repent, we are sorry for when we tried to use you for your gifts, we want you as the giver of the gifts, we want relationship with you, we want to be close to you, I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't have that, that today would be the day of salvation, I pray God for those of us who have things that need to be corrected and rebuked and, and transformed and changed, that you'd have that, for those who need a word of encouragement, through the exact same words I speak to rebuke someone, would you use them to encourage someone else, it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we get started this morning, I want to just ask you a, a simple question is this. Are you ready for what God has next for you? We've been praying in this, in this prayer initiative, praying for revival in our own hearts. Are you ready for that to happen? We've been praying for a future facility. Are you ready if that were to happen? Been praying for God to do stuff in the community. Are you ready if that would happen? What does God want to do next in your life? And as I was thinking about it, have you ever thought about how much time we spend in preparation some of you are students, I can see some of you young folks in here today, you go, to high, you go to elementary, high school, and there's like, it depends on how long it takes you, I guess, and if you did pre-K, 12, 13, 15 years, depends on who you are and which story is. But that's all preparation for many of you just to get into college, which is more preparation. So you did preparation for preparation. And then you do four seven depends on your story again years of college undergrad some of you went to grad school and other things and and then you go out and you finally get the job you've been preparing for and some of you spent 14 17 20 years getting ready if you got a doctorate maybe 25 years getting ready and you get the job and then what many people do trust me i'm a pastor i talk to some of these people everybody complains about their job some people get in there and they finally get the job and they're like i don't even know if i want to do this you spent 20 or 25 years getting ready and you can take anything in life that we get ready for and start thinking about how much time do you spend? Christmas, and that's getting longer and longer. It used to be from Thanksgiving to the Christmas day, and now they call it the Christmas creep. How long do we get ready for Christmas? How long do you get ready for Thanksgiving, for a birthday, for special stuff that happens? And I came across one study. Ladies, you can be mad at me for reading this later. Please don't do it in the moment. Don't throw anything. The study was how long women take to get ready for a night out. And a study said, on average, the wom- a woman will spend in her lifetime 3,276 hours getting ready for a night out. Some of you are like, elbowing your husband, like, I need a night out. Give me some time here. That's enough time for an astronaut to fly to the moon and back 22 times. <laughs> Men, by contrast, that's 136 days for women. Men, by contrast, spend 46 days getting ready for a night out. And before you get cocky, guys, it It shows. Men, on average in a lifetime, spend four months of their lives shaving. Women spend one year deciding what to wear. Don't say amen. Don't say amen, guys. There is a lot of stuff we spend time getting ready for. We see some young ladies in our church, and they'll, they'll be walking around, be nine months pregnant. You can see it on their face. They are ready. Sometimes I'll do a wedding, and I'll lean into the, the, the groom right before we go out there. i say, are you ready? It doesn't matter what that dude says, just so you know. We're going out there. At least I am, I guess. It doesn't matter what he says either. He ain't ready, just so you know. <laughs> I was thinking about it this week. I remember a time when in college, a buddy of mine asked me if I wanted to go skydiving. <laughs> and I'm an idiot. So I said yes. And so we went out there and all the bravado. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to jump out of a plane. It's going to be awesome. We show up. We pull up to this place. they got all these motorcycles parked out in front. It's kind of on this farm. It's not like an, it's not RDU airport, trust me. And uh, we come up to this place. We walk in and they say, you want to jump out of a plane? We're like, yeah, we want to jump out of a plane. They give us all these forms to sign. The forms basically say, if you die, you won't sue us. And so I'm just, ah, I'm going to be dead. Who cares? You know, sign the forms. And, and they take us into a room and we watch a, This shows when I went to college, a VHS tape. <laughs> you ever seen one of those? VHS tape for about 15 or 20 minutes of all the different ways you can die jumping out of a plane. You wouldn't have known there were that many ways. but then, So they've got you really encouraged at this point. And then they take you out back, and the guy who packed the parachutes comes out. He looks like he just woke up. And his buddy comes up, and he starts talking about how unreliable the guy is who packed the parachutes. That ain't funny in that moment. But he's supposed to tell us, like, bend like this. This is when you jump. I'll pack you on the back. I'll ask if you're ready. And it's all like, all right, it's going to be great. And you're looking at your friend like, we're still doing this. All right, we gave him the money. And we're, we get in this plane that's missing a door. I've never flown on a plane that's missing a door before. We fly up to about 10,000 feet, I think it was, whatever the height is at that point, we're too high. That's where we were at. And you think, like, you see this on TV, and you'd imagine somebody jumps out of a plane, they just kind of float, like they're floating, right? Like they're doing all the acrobatics and all that stuff. If you get to the edge of, have you ever done this before? You get to, the guy before you goes, and he's like, he's gone. <laughs> it's like, what happened? To him? I thought I'd see him, like, floating now. <laughs> he's just gone. So I get to the edge of the plane. I'm standing there. He pats you on the back. He's like, I'm not ready. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I could have spent weeks getting it. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't... And let me ask you a bigger question. Are you ready for what God wants to do next? Some of you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior yet. Let me ask you this. What's stopping you? Some of you, we've had seven people place their faith in Jesus in the last two weeks at our church. Yeah, for sure. Give the Lord a hand. If you're one of those seven people, let me tell you your next step of faith is to be baptized. We're going to be baptizing people on Easter. Are You Ready? And some of you are believers in Jesus. You've never been baptized. What a great opportunity for you. You ready? And some of you, maybe you've trusted Christ. You've been baptized. You're like, oh, those decisions are in the rearview mirror. Let me tell you something. God has begun a good work in you, and he will be faithful to complete it. So he keeps calling you to take next steps of faith. And for some of you, that's going to be a new path than what you've been going down in your life. For others of you, it's taken another level of commitment. It's the next thing. You're surrendering something to him. Are you ready? And the good news is that in our passage today, Peter tells us three ways we can know if we're ready for what God has for us next. If you have your Bible, please join me in the book of Peter, 1 Peter. Towards if you're using an old Bible like me that has pages in it and everything, it's after Hebrews, after James, it's 1 Peter. Peter's this guy, he was one of the closest friends that Jesus had on earth. And, And Jesus sent him out. The sent guys are called apostles, and he's one of the apostles. So people sometimes call him the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter was sent out to get this movement known as the church. And Peter's writing to these people who placed their faith in Jesus, and rather than that becoming their best life now, what has happened is that because they've trusted Jesus, that's why their life is so hard. They're suffering, they're hurting in their lives, and so Peter's writing them, telling them, hey, this isn't your home, but let me tell you how to live while you're here. And we always talk about as a church every week, connecting people to Jesus Christ for life change. We want to see lives transformed. That can be trusting Christ as Savior. It can be being baptized. It can be repenting of an addiction, or repenting of sin, reconciling a relationship. It can be all kinds of things, taking the next step of faith. But then how do you live it out? Remember, we talked about that last week. You live it out by bringing the gospel into your home. Husbands, the way you relate to your wives. Wives, the way you relate to your husbands. By bringing the gospel to church. It's not just the preacher's job at the end of a sermon to say, hey, here's the gospel But we all bring the gospel to church when we get messy with one another. And we decide to walk through the process with one another. We're willing to be a blessing rather than just coming to get something at church. And so we do that. And then Peter tells us, you want to know if you're ready for what's next? Here's how. Verse 13, chapter 3. Now, he's just been talking to us about living these incredible lives that reflect the glory of God. And he says this, who is there to harm you if you're zealous? You're excited about living this kind of life. If you're zealous for what is good. And here's the answer. Answer, there's some people that will harm you. Because Jesus was doing it and they killed him. And we follow him. And Nero's the emperor at this time. He's going to end up crucifying Peter upside down. He's going to cut Paul's head off. So some people will harm you when you're zealous for doing good. And he acknowledges that in the next verse. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then this is key. You can underline this. We'll come back to this a little bit later. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But, contrast, in your hearts... Honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. Some of your translators say set him apart in your hearts as Lord. Same idea. Always being prepared, ready, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And we oftentimes miss this part. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. A lot of times we get real intense, because of, not because of our passion, because of our insecurities. So be so confident that Jesus is Lord in your heart. You do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so, that even when, not if, even when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, pursuing what God's calling you to, what's next, than for doing evil. And so, here in this passage, Peter's talking about God's got something next for you. So, we talked about bringing the gospel into the home. We talked about bringing the gospel into the church. Let's talk about bringing the gospel into the world. This his plan for every believer. Here's God's will. God's will for you. He's calling you to that next thing. How do you know if you're ready? The first thing he shows us is in this passage. And we're going to read further. We've got a lot of verses to cover today, just so you know. FYI, there's going to be content today. And the first one is this. You know you're ready when you're ready to give an answer for your ultimate hope. If you're going to be ready, you have to be ready to give an answer for your ultimate, and I'll talk about why I say that word ultimate, hope, here in a little bit. But notice, your answer for your ultimate hope is not some answer you just go around proclaiming, which is oftentimes how we portray it in Christianity. You just go out there and let me. here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take some sacrificial money and I'm going to set it aside and I'm going to buy a hot air balloon. I'm going to put Jesus as my hope on the side and fulfill this verse, got that one covered. What's next, Jesus? Or I'm going to put off this out my car after I cut some dude off. Jesus loves you. He's my hope. Notice the passage says that you get asked about your hope. In light of the life that you're living that he's been talking about since chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, He's then talked about, hey, you just, if you submit to authority, even when authority is bad, if you entrust yourself entrust yourself to the Father who judges justly and trust that he's put these people in your life, if you submit to suffering, if you bring the gospel into your home, if you bring the gospel into the church, people are going to want to know about your hope. And so when they ask you, they're asking you because it's so different than their hope. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, has anyone ever, not that they ask every day, but has anyone ever asked you about your hope? Maybe they don't ask because your hope's exactly like theirs. Because the idea is that your hope is so different that they're intrigued, you think about it, we're intrigued by things that are different. If you're an art enthusiast, and somebody brings in some art no one's ever seen before, then people are, unless it's junk, people are flocking around, sometimes because it's junk, people are flocking around, all the art go to a car show it's the new car that's doing the new thing everybody comes in. flocks around the new thing i was talking to i'm planning on going to madagascar this summer to visit our missionaries so madagascar god's done amazing work there it's on like the book of acts some of you know that have been around our church if you haven't we've got four missionaries that are in uh, madagascar africa which is not just a cartoon it's a real place king julian is not the king there for those of you who have kids you know what i'm talking about but God's been doing like a book of Acts type work there. We've got some, two of our missionaries. The Wallers have been there for about 10 years. The Bakers have come there to come alongside of them. And uh, in the 10 years they've been there, they've started 150 churches. It's pretty amazing. People are going to say, whole villages trust in Christ. And they need some leadership training. And so one of our elders, J.D. Henserling, who's been there about six or seven times now, is going is to be leading a trip. I'm going to go on the trip. We're going to do some training to some of their leaders. And for a nanosecond, I thought, maybe I should bring one of my daughters we're going to go out in the bush, and I don't know what it's like out in the, I've been there one time before, but I was only in the city, I didn't go out in the bush, they hadn't started planting churches yet, and I said, would she be safe out in the bush? And he said, she'd be safer out in the bush than in the city, and I, was, I was like, whoa, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute, but he said, but when you get out there, they're going to have never seen a little person like that with fair skin and blonde hair, and they're going to come up, and they're just going to want to, like, touch her, <laughs> grab her hair, It's because she's so different. They're intrigued. Is anyone asking about your, not your faith, not your church, not your doctrine, your hope? Because it's hope here. It's again in this passage, and and it's becoming almost ridiculously redundant to talk about hope in Peter. I'm gonna define it for you one more time, and here's why. And some of you have been here, and you're like, oh man, I already got this. Here's the reality. In two or three years from now, so I'm saying this to you as a pastor, maybe five years from now, some of you are gonna find you're at a place Will you feel hopeless? And that might be because of a loss of a child. It might be a divorce. It might be some difficult thing happens, some tragedy you couldn't in this moment ever even foresee happening. And I don't think you're going to remember the definition, but here's what I want to happen. I want you to go, man, Pastor Scott wouldn't stop talking about hope when we were in Peter. So I'm going to go read First Peter. And what you're going to find is you see, you see hope in chapter 1 and verse 3. It says you've been born again to a living hope. You don't get a single command for the first 12 verses of the book, but then in verse 13, do you know what it talks about? Where you set your hope fully. The first command has to do with hope. Then you see it again in verse 21. Then we see it here. It's the thing you're getting asked about. So what is it? Remember, biblical hope is different than the type of hope we talk about as a culture all the time. So some of you here, you have a hope that Duke's going to win the tournament. That was for you, Jim. (laughs) Some of you have a hope that anybody but Duke will win the tournament. And all the Tar Heels said, couple of you. All right. You're awake. Some of you have a hope that it's going to snow. You're crazy. Some of you have a hope that it's going to be 70. Either one of us could be right tomorrow. (laughs) But all that is is a wish. We don't know. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about a certainty, a known thing. Here's why. Because the hope isn't based on our wish. I can hope some crazy thing happens, but our hope is based on the promises of God, and God always keeps his promises. We just sang about that. And so that's what faith is. In fact, Hebrews chapter chapter 11 defines faith. You want a Bible definition of faith? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you want a biblical definition of hope, it's faith for something that hasn't happened yet. But you can have 100% certainty because of who you're basing that faith in. Now, You want to know if you can believe something? Here's a leadership principle for you. Some of you know this. You ever hired somebody? The best predictor of future performance is what? Past performance. So God always keeps his promises. And guess what you find out when you look at this passage? Hope is directly tied to who's Lord. Go back to verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Set them apart. Who's Lord? And here's the reality. Just a pause before we read the next part of the verse. Lord's kind of a church word. If you don't go to church, you're like Lord. That's kind of like old English. You see that like William Wallace. What are you talking about? Lord. Everybody has a Lord. It's why on the first point I use the word ultimate. Whatever's ultimate life in your life is what is Lord of your life. And so everybody has a Lord. For some people, their job is Lord. For some people, their spouse is Lord. For other people, it's money that's Lord. For some people, it's other people's opinion that's Lord. For some people, it's their ministry that's Lord. For some people, it's, what have I said? Their kids that are Lord? You can list like a thousand things. And that's where your hope is. Because look at what it says next. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. So believers, it's supposed to be Jesus. Always being prepared to make a defense. Anyone who asks about a reason for the hope that is in you. What's in you? It's what you've set apart separate in your heart as Lord. And so how do you get to the place where Jesus is Lord? You've got to get to the place where what we talked about in chapter 2 and verse 23. When we saw Jesus' example of suffering under Pilate, under Herod, being mocked, being beaten, Not good leadership, but submitting why? Verse 23, not because he trusted Herod, not because he trusted Pilate, because he entrusted himself to his Father who judges justly. It's one thing to say, I trust God, quote Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's another thing to entrust yourself to God because that's incredibly vulnerable. That means whatever is your will. And so he says at the end of this, seeking God's will, even if it means suffering. Have you entrusted yourself? Is Jesus Lord in your life? How do you know? Look at past performance. Is he trustworthy? And what do you see through the Scriptures? He's never failed to keep a promise. Once you look at every promise he's ever given, he's always kept his promises. And so from the garden, when Satan starts to try and destroy all of humanity, he promises a Savior. And then you keep tra- tracing through the Old Testament and you see over and over again, Satan's trying to cut off the Jewish people. Even, even post-biblical, you see what Hitler did. You see trying to destroy these, these people. In the Bible though, it's because that Jesus the Messiah is going to come through those people. And then you see the kind of people that God uses. Read Matthew chapter 1, Tamar, Rahab. Not people you and I would pick to have our Savior delivered through. So God doesn't always do the promises the way that we would anticipate, the way we would want, the way we would design, but he keeps them. And not only that, he shuts the mouth of lions. He parts the Red Sea. There's other things he does to boost our confidence, by the way. Walls of Jericho come tumbling down. The promised land is what he's delivering. Oh, wow. I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's always present with us. He's always there. When I want a broken and contrite heart, I will forgive your sins as far as the east is from the west. Promises. He's always kept his promises. And the greatest one is the resurrection. Because if that one's not true, none of the other ones matter. But he's kept all of his promises. But here's the reality. Pastorally, there are some of you here, you feel like God's let you down. Now, he keeps all the promises he makes in his word. But some of you, you wanted to have a baby, and it didn't happen. You prayed for what was it? And he said no. It wasn't community group, small group, uh, three or four weeks ago. And our small group leader asked one question. We had the guys broken off and the girls broken off separate. That's one question we talked for the whole time. You know, sometimes if you've been in small groups, the group leader will ask a question and nobody says anything. It's like, next question, please. <laughs> and then sometimes somebody says something and it's just like, boom, they jump all over. People just started sharing stories. His question was this, has God ever said no to you? Let me tell you something, God says no. And everybody starts sharing stories. Now, before I tell the next part, let me just say, I know my role. Like I'm a pastor, equip the saints for works of service. I should encourage faith, totally get that. But people were telling stories and they all had the same formula to them is that God said no, and it was difficult, but then I realized it was his protection. God said no, and it was difficult, but then I saw God's provision, and I was frustrated because I was feeling disappointed in God and some things, and I thought, well, doesn't God ever just disappoint you? Like, I said it all out to the guys, they're looking at me like, you're the pastor. No, they weren't doing that. It was was cool, and then I started telling a story that some of them I lived through. I said, do you remember when we did that billing campaign and we were trying to raise $4 million of, and we went through and we only raised $2 million and I was praying. I believe that God wants, now God doesn't promise $4 million in the Bible so you can't just like come up with some wish and make him do it. I said, I wanted him to do that and I thought he was going to do it and, and I knew our church didn't have the capacity to do that. I knew that when, when I said it to our church. I said, but God owns a cattle on a thousand hill. We believe in a big God. Let's watch him show up and do something. We did the campaign, had the commitment Sunday. We raised $2 million, <laughs> which was very faithful it was very generous of the people in our church, but it wasn't for. Then one of the guys in the group looked at me, and he smiled. He goes, hey, Scott, how much money do we have in the bank now for property? It's one of the benefits of small group, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, God has miraculously brought us to a place where we've got just over $4 million in our account right now. Now, God's not obligated to give us $4 million, but then I looked at it, and I was like, oh, he didn't do it the way that I wanted him to do it, but he did it. Amen, Steve. I'll amen you this time. <laughs> and God shows he cares. He shows he's involved. And the guy who said it, by the way, he's not sitting in the room right now. He's working with the youth group. He had this look on his face, like a cat. Who'd you say to bird? Like, God just gave me this zinger. I just got the pastor. Boom. <laughs> and I walked out though, and I was so I told my wife later, I was like, God did it. I didn't even realize he did it. One promotion for small groups, just so you know. God people see blind spots in your life. But God always comes through, and sometimes he tells you no, and it's for your good. It doesn't seem like it at the time. But then you see people in the Bible, like, have you ever seen Job? Job chapter 1 and verse 20, let me read you a verse. I've told the story of Job oftentimes. I don't think I've read this verse. Job loses 10 kids in one day. Multiple businesses are destroyed and one day. Revenue coming in, gone. He's not crazy. He mourns. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. That, I want to know as a believer about that hope, that's different. And let me tell you something. How do you know? How do you know if Jesus is Lord? Because you know that's supposed to be the right answer, right? Like if you've been in church, you know Jesus is the right. If you don't even know the answer, you don't even know the question. Somebody's looking at you, they just ask you, Jesus, you just know. Jesus is supposed to be Lord, right? But here's how you know if Jesus is Lord in your heart. Follow your fear, you'll find your Lord. Follow your fear and find your Lord. Where do you get that? Just making that up? Does it sound good? Is it catchy? Well, it's in the Bible. If you go back, I told you, to pay attention to what he said in verse 14 before you read verse 15. It says, You're gonna suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. How do you see hope? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Your fear and your anxiety will lead you to your Lord. Because in verse 15, that's when he talks about but contrast, instead of having fear, instead of having anxiety, set Christ apart as Lord in your heart. And then people are going to ask about your hope. Here's how we see hope. Depends on who your Lord is. How do we know who your Lord is? We see your fear. So when the Coptic Christians are getting their heads cut off and they're singing hymns, and people are going, they're nuts. They're going, the worst thing you can do is kill me? That's a gift. I get to go be with Jesus. That's the worst you can do to me. I fear God because he can throw my soul into hell. So what's your fear? If the answer is your job, you just found your Lord. Is that your greatest fear? Are you Are going to lose your job? Is your greatest fear what's going to happen to your 401k? Is your greatest fear what's going to, if you, what if your spouse left? Is your greatest fear that you're not going to get the praise of other people? Is your greatest fear something's going to happen with your kids? Good news. You just found your Lord. At least you know. But if, you don't, if your greatest fear isn't one of those things, but it's God, then Jesus is Lord. And people might be asking about your hope. You're, you might be ready. There's two more things. You might be ready what God has next for you if you can give an answer for your hope. And you might be ready if you're ready to be refined in your faith. Mm -hmm. And that's what chapter 4 starts talking about. Chapter 4. Oh, before I do that, I almost skipped over the hardest part. Some of you give me a hard time if I do that. Uh, Verses 18 through 22, they get crazy, just so you know. Verse 18 talks about the gospel. Uh, It's the penal substitutionary atonement is what theologians talk about. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, it's the penalty that Jesus took was our penalty And Jesus died on the cross. He didn't commit any sins. He was righteous dying for the unrighteous. He was our substitute, and He atoned for our sins. He cleanses us of our sins by taking the wrath of His Father upon Himself. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, and then God turns His back on His Son on the cross. He's atoning for our sins, and it's all right here in verse 18. It's the gospel. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then in verse 19 through 22 is where it gets crazy. I posted, we were going to preach, I was going to preach this passage last week, we didn't get to it, and I had posted on Facebook that Martin Luther, a famous reformer from the 16th century, had said, nobody understands this passage and nobody can explain it. And I read that and I thought, well. I don't have a chance. Like, Martin Luther can figure this out. I posted on Facebook just to let everybody know, don't set your hopes too high if you're reading ahead. And my buddy, Jeff Heilman, wrote on Facebook. He said, there's a lot of stuff they didn't have figured out in the 16th century. And I thought, Martin Luther probably didn't know how to turn on an iPhone. I can do that. I got that going for me. Let's see what we got. And so I dive in to study this passage. I find there's 180 different variations of interpretations of verses 19 through 21. And so we're going to walk through those. Uh, I'd like to show the slides well, at least you know we're not in seminary right now. There's three main, three main views. One of the views is that Jesus went and spoke to spirits that were imprisoned, and those spirits, angels, fallen angels, were from the time of Noah. Another view, second main view, and a lot of church fathers believe that one. Second main view is that Jesus was preaching through Noah during the days of Noah for the 120 years that he was alive while he's building the ark, living by faith. Third view, which is the view that I hold, but loosely, because I'm not sure, is that Jesus went and preached, after his resurrection, victory to these fallen angels. And so I believe believe it's like, I called my shot. Did you see that, guys? Because we know there's no second chance at salvation. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it's appointed for one man to die on one day and then to face judgment. There's not not after you die, you don't get another chance. Because otherwise, why would we have missionaries? Because let's just let Jesus preach to them after they die. They don't believe that. There's only one chance, and it's here in this life. Are you ready? Are you ready? But what we do know, there's a lot of details here that make this confusing. Here's what we know for sure, and you see the theme, keep the main thing, the main thing going through this, is that Jesus is vindicated through suffering. And then we declare the resurrection through our baptism. And so let's see it. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed, and so he's resurrected, he's made alive, so that he died, the, un- the righteous for the unrighteous, he suffered, he was put to death, he was made alive, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. So it doesn't say he proclaimed the gospel. It doesn't say they were in hell. So they're in prison somewhere. And when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, ready again, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah had his family. So think about who he's writing to, these suffering Christians that feel like they're the minority. He's like Noah, Noah it was him and seven other people were brought safely through water. They weren't saved by water. They were brought through water, which is key in understanding verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now here's the reality. I just told you what saved you in verse 18, which is the gospel. Now some people will take this verse in isolation, just that phrase I just read, and say you, if you can't even be a Christian unless you get baptized, but read the rest of it. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. You don't get cleansed by baptism, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. You've been commanded to be baptized. through. Here's how you're saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's a declaration of what happened in your heart. when you're. How do we know if you are saved by verse 18? What Jesus did on the cross. How do we know if you're saved? Verse 21, you get baptized. Because that's when you let the world know that you're a Christian. So we're doing baptism on Easter Sunday, which I think is an amazing opportunity for everybody who needs to be baptized in our church to preach on Easter Sunday. But you don't have to say a thing. It's the very best word picture that we have of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an declaration of what's happened in your heart so that the world can know. That's what he's saying here in this passage. He said, it's not the cleansing, it's not the washing. You don't get cleansed off. It's not a ceremonial cleaning that's taking place when you're being baptized. It's not the removal of dirt. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then here's a declaration of his victory. Who's gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. He's got all authority and heaven and earth he rules over it all. And then the second one. Sorry for trying to skip over that. Now we're at point two. Here we go. Sorry, slide guys. Messed you up there. Point two is we're ready to be refined. You are ready to be refined. And in chapter four, it talks about the way that we're refining is through suffering. So I know this isn't a fun passage, but it gives Jesus the example in the first part of the verse. Since therefore Christ suffered, so think about that, and go back to chapter two, verses 21 through 25, talks about his suffering. A lot of times we just flippantly say Jesus died for our sins. He thought about his suffering it was because of our sins that he was flogged. It was because of our sins they put a thorn crown on his head. It was because of our sins his beard was ripped out. It was because of our sins they played blind man's bluff with him and they mocked him. and They punched him in the face until he's unrecognizable as a human. Therefore Christ suffered, but what was his mindset? Look at what this passage says next. In the flesh. Arm yourselves. That's what a soldier does when they get ready. So here's get ready. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay, don't arm yourselves physically with military gear. Arm yourself with a mindset, the same way of thinking that Jesus Christ had. Forever has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. Now, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to be true. Because everybody here, we got one thing in common, whether you're a Christian or not, a Christian is we're all sinners. And many of us have suffered. But we haven't stopped sinning. What is what is he talking about here when he says this? Peter knows that he hasn't stopped sinning. Paul hasn't stopped sinning. He talks about it in the Bible, talks about his own struggles with sin. What he's talking about here, and we'll see when we keep reading through this passage, is that when you decide when you're willing to face suffering rather than turn to sin, he's remember he's writing to persecuted Christians. You've shown that you've turned your back on sin. You're now pursuing what God has for you. You're now pursuing God's will rather than going after the stuff you've been going after for your whole life. You've been wasting your life pursuing sin and it's not fulfilling. So now you've shown that you've turned your back on sin you'll no longer want that. And here's the reality. He's not talking about everybody who suffers gets refined by that. Some people who suffer sin more. I was reading yesterday, our church partners with a ministry called Women at Risk International. So I mentioned, you know, guests, if you go out to the tent and turn in a card, or you're going to get, you know, text in your thing at the end of the service, all this stuff. Every time somebody does that, we make a donation to a ministry called human at, uh, um, for human trafficking called Women at Risk International. I remember when I first started learning about human trafficking, my thought was, we've got to kill these traffickers and rescue these kids. And I remember talking to the leader of this ministry and, and literally, say, I, it's really sinful. I was like, I know people. We can, we can do this. She's like, you kill the trafficker, another trafficker comes, their hearts have to be changed. The gospel's the answer. I need to be reminded of that. And so they are talking about these kids. And uh, I was reading on their website uh, yesterday about this one girl they rescued, Sweetie, a little baby. Her mom was a slave in another country, and the, one of the people that worked for Women at Risk International saw this baby in this box, and uh, she, was given, she was born to the slave. And... Um, They can't just kidnap her. That's illegal too. They wanted to rescue her out of there. One time they saw her, she was tied up to a pole because they were trying to keep her from going this terrible stuff she was getting into, needles and condoms and all kinds of stuff in the sewer. And so really they were trying to care for her by tying her up to a pole. But they didn't want her to cry, so they beat her, so she'd stop crying as a baby. She wouldn't cry anymore. She'd just open her mouth and pretend to cry. When they rescued her eventually, the only words that she did know were swear words. That's what she learned from suffering and pain in her heart. So she didn't suffer with Christ. Not that Jesus wasn't present, not that he didn't see, not that he wasn't there, she wasn't a Christian. So she learned more sin from the sin that happened to her, and that's what some of you have experienced. Maybe not the same extreme. Now she's been receiving the gospel and seeing gospel love. and God's transforming her heart. You can go read about it on their website. There's multiple blogs about Sweetie. You can look her up, Women at Risk International. But it's those who suffer with Christ, with that mindset. And what's the mindset? What mindset did Jesus have? Go back to chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Remember, he entrusted himself to the Father. What was happening to him was horrible. But he trusted God. Here's the reality about all suffering. Because many of you suffer for different reasons. Some of you suffer because of your own sin. Some of you suffer because of other people's sin. That's collateral damage. Just by being around other humans, you will experience the ripple effect of their sin. You get involved in relationships like we talked about last week, it'll get even worse. It's like being a, you know, in a you know, military campaign and some guy on your team steps on a mine. Well, he gets blown up, but you get shrapnel. That's what happens with sin, and that's why some of you suffer. Some of you, the suffering in your life is almost unexplainable. You've lost a baby, somebody left you, betrayed you, did something, and you're like, cancer came, and you're like, why? You can't pin it down to sin. You can't, and it's, it's almost unexplainable. Let me tell you something about all of that. None of that came into your life that didn't pass through the hands of God first. That doesn't make God evil. Read Job. What happened? Satan has to come because God's got... We just read at the end of chapter 3 all, the, all angels, all authorities, all powers are subjected to Jesus Christ. When he says in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Do you know what that means? Everybody needs my permission. It all passes through my hands. Here's why that's comforting. Because God can take the ugliest stuff, even what happened to that little baby, sweetie, and do some of his most beautiful work. And that's the gospel. So I don't know what you've been through, but God can take the worst stuff in this room and do some of his greatest work. Because one of the things he does is he, we sanctify him as Lord in our hearts, he sanctifies us through the process of suffering. And you see it through the Bible. You see it with Job. Godly man at the beginning of the book. But he knows and only heard about you No, I've seen you. See the suffering. Paul, think about Paul. I bet Paul suffered more than anybody in this room. And if you think you've got more, I would love to talk to you. I'd love to hear your story. But Paul, that guy was flogged multiple times. Many people died from flogging, just so you know. He was stoned at one point. They thought they left him for dead. That's just physical stuff shipwrecked, out at sea, didn't have food at times, new emotional stress, new spiritual stress, new physical pain. Let me read you about the worst experience he ever had 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened, beyond our strength. God will give you more than you can handle, but there's a reason. Paul says he despaired of life itself, he wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but words of hope many times you suffer, you don't know why, we often don't know the cause. We can know what God's doing, and He's doing something. It's not purposeless. There's hope. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, that's sin, but on God who raises the dead, the same God that we can trust for our hope. And then look at the verse 10. If you have a 2 Corinthians chapter 1, or it's on the screen. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us, in the final judgment, on Him we set our hope. See, God uses pain. It's Hudson Taylor, the first person to uh, helped me understand John chapter 15. Hudson Taylor is a famous missionary, if you don't know who he is. His wife died when she was 33 and he was 38. He, he buried three kids on the mission field. He knew pain. He talks about John chapter 15. It's oftentimes put in devotional books or blogs. Abide in Christ. Do your devotions. Pray. Do you know what the main instrument of you getting closer and stronger in the vine is in John chapter 15? He's talking about a vine dresser. could have talked about fer- fertilizer. could have talked about water. But he talks about pruning shears. It's often painful, but it's for your good. Nothing happens. That's the mindset of Christ. That doesn't pass through the hands of God. And he goes on to talk about the refining. Verse 2, I haven't read yet. So, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, don't do that. You cease from sin, don't do this anymore. But for the will of God. What's next? Calling you to what's next. For the time that has passed suffices. Whenever you trusted Jesus, you've done enough sin have you? It's a question for you while I read the rest of this. Has it been enough? Just a little bit more sin before I really go all in? Just look. Doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't rush with them, when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they mock you, they malign you. You're missing out. I remember feeling this way as a non-believer when some of my friends became Christians. You're missing out. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead, those who've already died. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. And the NIV says now dead. Those who were alive, heard the gospel, are now dead. That through that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit, the way God does. They're given hope, they're given opportunity. Have you, have you sinned enough? Has it been enough sin? Are you ready to be refined? And the last one is this. The third way you know if you're ready is verses 7 through 11. You're ready for Jesus to return. Are you ready for Jesus to return? If you are ready for Jesus to return, then you might be ready for what God has for you next. Look at verse 7, the very first part. The end of all things is at hand. Wait a minute, Peter. I'm not an idiot. This was written 2,000 years ago. All right. Maybe he didn't get that one right. I don't know. Have you ever, ever wondered? You said it could happen at any moment, coming on a cloud, wars, rumors of wars. When are the last days? Here's what Peter's saying here. Peter is saying that when, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil was torn. That put an end to Old Testament sacrifices. The old, that way was done. We've now entered into the last age, the church age. And Jesus come back at any moment. Do you want to know if it's the last days? You can read, you can come up, people have their charts and do all that stuff. That's not what he's going to tell you to do when he says it at the end, by the way. He doesn't say, hey, it's the end of all things. Come up with a chart. Nope. you can do that. And he doesn't say, hey, read the newspaper and see if it's happened. You can read Matthew chapter 24, rumors of wars and wars. Jesus is going to read Revelation. Jesus is going to come, What's it's going to be like. You can see all this stuff that you're going to, you can read about. Read 2 Timothy chapter three. You want to know from the last days? People will be lovers of selves, lovers of money. Kids won't obey their parents. Sound familiar? You don't even have to be like a Bible scholar. But let me tell you something, that's not new. Do you, know why, do you know why Jesus hasn't come back? It's because God's patient. Second Peter chapter 3, and verse 9, not willing that any should perish. And to him, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And So, he, the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he's waiting for more people to trust Jesus. The people we're praying for in our prayer initiative in our community right now, wouldn't it be amazing if you were ushering in Jesus coming back? Wouldn't it be amazing if the last thing you did before Jesus came back was you were leading the last person that would trust Christ to Jesus? Wouldn't that be incredible? And what would you do if you knew? Now, I know we have seminary people here today. Don't, don't, no one knows the day or the hour. Got it. Totally. Don't send me an email. Totally good. Got it. What if you did know? Or what if you just knew it was the end of the, like the way that the world tries to get us to think about this oftentimes too. You get these, you know, end times movies or different things that will happen or it's like some apocalypse. Somebody bombs Canada. Like who's bombing Canada? But whatever. Nuclear bomb hits Canada. They missed America, right? And so the bomb hits Canada and then the radiation's coming into North America. Now what are we going to do? Let me tell you what the movies always reveal. People rush harder and faster after their Lord. Pleasure, I'm going to get the last bit of pleasure in. I'm going to survive, and preser- I'm going to preserve myself. You're going to be the one guy that survives. Okay, how's that going to be? Because I am Lord, because this is Lord. Because would you as a believer in Jesus Christ embrace the sanctifying suffering so that people would then see your hope? They're like Job, he worshiped. The end, you know what Martin Luther said he would do? It was the end. Martin Luther, the guy that I mentioned a little bit earlier, reformer, famous reformer, he said he'd plant a tree and pay his taxes. Let me tell you something. I probably wouldn't pay my taxes. Too much paperwork. But here's what he was saying. You don't have to go do some heroic thing. Be faithful with what God calls you to now. And that's what Peter shows us in this passage. I'm going to give you three principles to highlight what these verses are saying. And the first one is this. The end is all at hand, so think right the next one's going to be love deeply, and the third one's going to be serve sacrificially. None of them are super. None of them say, "Take your savings account, go buy a hot air balloon, and put." My hope is in Jesus. So be faithful. The first one, he says, this think right. Verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Get your mind right for the sake of your prayers. But most of us wouldn't finish the verse like that. Your prayer, the prayer matters. Prayer makes a difference. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Pray, we're in a prayer initiative. You might seem passive. No, we're doing something. We're beseeching the God of the universe. But think right. you got to have your mind right. What does that mean? Have you ever seen somebody who's drunk? Not asking if you've ever been drunk. Don't put your hands up. I see all hands. I'm a pastor. See that hand. See that hand. Have you ever seen somebody who's drunk? They look foolish. Every once in a while, there'll be a video that'll go viral, and there'll be some guy that like, got pulled over, and they asked him to do the alphabet backwards, or asked him to like, say his ABCs from the back, you know, back to the front, and I don't even know if I could do that sober, but anyway, they ask you to walk down some line, and he's like walking down the line, elemental PZ84, and you're just like, this guys he's such a fool. We've already read in Peter that angels long to look into our salvation. Who's watching? In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, it says that the church is the cosmic display of the mystery of the gospel, how different people could come together in unity with one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. And I wonder what it looks like to an angel when somebody who knows that Jesus can come back at any moment lives like this world is all there is. What a fool. Get your mind right, think right, but above all, next one, love deeply. Verse 8, verses 8 and 9. Above all, the most important, here it is, there's the Supreme One, keep, continue on, loving one another earnestly. It's the idea of an athlete straining their muscles earnestly since love, here's why, covers a multitude of sins. How do you do this? He unpacks it, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We live in the South. Everybody here has probably got the gift of hospitality. Probably make some sweet tea, bring people over afterwards. Let me tell you why J.D., the elder that I was talking to about my, my daughter coming to Madagascar, I said, why he said that she'd be so safe. He said, if you stay out in the villages, you'll have armed guards outside your tent because they'll lay their life down rather than let something happen to one of their guests. That's hospitality. You're willing to lay your life down and love for someone else. Remember what it's illustrating? Verse 8, keep on loving one another. Remember last week we talked about if you're going to bring the gospel into the church, it gets messy, you've got to walk through the process. And then I said this statement, you put two sinners together. I don't care if we're talking about marriage, I don't care if we're talking about church, I don't care if we're just working together. Put two sinners together, somebody's going to get hurt. Here's the question, then what? Now what do you do? I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to go to a different church. I'm going to get a divorce. You can run. That's not the biblical option. Love covers a multitude of sins. Doesn't mean not dealing with sins. Some sins people should be put in jail for. Doesn't mean you don't love them. I read one author who said that, that love in a relationship where there's sin involved is like a blanket to fire. It sucks the oxygen out of sin. So you don't seek, you don't revile in return, you don't seek retribution. The cross deals with that. But you love. Sometimes you lovingly confront those people in their sin, not because you need to be paid back, but because you care for them, and you know you believe, you genuinely believe that sin leads to death. Love, above all else. And then the third one, sacrificially serve. Verses 10 and 11. Sacrificially serve. If you believe Jesus is coming back, what does he say to do? He says, use your gifts to serve one another for the glory of God. That's the summary of these verses. Look what it says. As each, not if, not if you have a gift. Every believer in Jesus Christ is given at least one spiritual gift. As each has received a gift, use it to serve yourself and make yourself look really good. No. Watch any you're reading. Use it to serve one another. So you're supposed to use it to serve the body of Christ. Are you doing it? As good stewards, you've been entrusted with something. Same as you're given money, you're given a spiritual gift. As good stewards, the word is house manager. It's not even your house. You're just there taking care of it. It's the idea of stewardship in the Bible as good stewards of the varied grace of God, God's varied grace. There's all kinds of different gifts. He's going to break them down in this passage into two categories, serving, speaking. There's different lists you can read, Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but none of them are exhaustive. There's a whole bunch of stuff, and they all fit underneath these categories. Speaking gifts include things like encouraging, exhorting, teaching, preaching, discernment, counseling, rebuking, confronting. Serving gifts include things like Obviously, picking up trash. Crafts is in the Old Testament. Woodworking. Music in the Old Testament, not listed in the New Testament. Picking up trash, like I said, working at the prison, being kind, being gentle. Leadership, administration, all service gifts. It says, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. He gives a doxology there. It's not the end of the book. It's like he keeps, it's like some preachers. Just keep going. We're saying here, whatever your gift is, use that gift to serve other people in the body of Christ by God's strength so that God receives the glory. And some of you might think to yourself, yeah, but my gift is so small. We're talking about the God who took a little boy's lunch and fed 5,000 people. Think about who's writing this. Peter. Do you remember Peter after the day of Pentecost? He comes walking into the temple. He's going to worship with his buddy John. There's a guy begging there, and he wants gold and silver. And Peter could have said, Forgot my wallet, bro. Sorry. Keep going. I'm here to worship. He says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk. And the guy gets up and walks. It's faith. I'm going to get all I have is Jesus. Let me just give you Jesus. What's your gift? crafts? Woodworking? Administration? Are you using it in this body? If not, we want you to. Come tell us. We've got a table in the lobby. You want to find out what your gift is? We'll pay for you to have a gift assessment. You want to go to a class to learn more about that? We've got one we're offering next week or next month. You can be a part of that. Sign, just let us know, and we'll help you find your spot. Find a spot to serve. But here's the reality. Most Christians, it's like my father-in-law tells this story every Christmas. I get so tired of hearing this story. But he tells this story about when when he was a young dad and they had just had their first couple kids, they didn't have hardly any money, and he went Christmas shopping, went to Goodwill, bought a ball for 25 cents, put it in a box, gave it to his daughter. She didn't play with the ball, she played with the box. And he always uses it to tell me, hey, they don't care what toys you give them, Scott. It doesn't matter. Every one of my kids has played with trash after I've given them Christmas presents on Christmas morning. I have a picture of my, my now six-year-old when she was three. I had to put up a little bag that Christmas morning to put the Christmas wrapping paper in. And then I had the presents, and she had her sister's open presents. So there's presents, there's gifts everywhere. And then I go over, and she's playing with the trash bag where we put all the junk in there. You know, they wrap these things like you have to have a security code to be able to get these little plastic toys out. And throw it all in there. She's playing with the trash. And I think that's so much like Christians. Not, not just because we playing with the world. You can be doing good stuff, but you're wasting your life not using your gifts the way they've been designed to be used. It's like Matthew chapter 25. You want, to enter into your, you want to enter into your master's happiness? Be faithful with what he's given you. So are you ready? Are you ready? Some of you, it's like me at the edge of that plane. I don't think I'm ready because you haven't done it yet. It's awesome jumping out of a plane. Don't think I'll ever do it again, but it's awesome. Some of you need to trust Jesus. What's stopping you? Some of you need to be Baptized. Now, now's the time you've got an opportunity there's going to be water Easter Sunday my parents aren't going to be there okay you're not going to baptize for your parents you're going to baptize for God well, we're going to have to go to lunch there'll still be food I promise you come with lots of reasons but are you, re- are you ready for what God has for you some of you different directions he's got a new path he's calling you to take a step of faith will you step out let's pray Father thank you thank you for a body of believers that care about each other God, I pray for people that are sitting next to each other right now. There's all kinds of things going on in their lives. I know at the beginning of the message, I prayed that you'd use the same words to encourage and rebuke. And God, some people in here have been rebuked. Some people have been encouraged. God, I pray that as we leave this place, you'd have sharp on one another. I pray for people who aren't in small groups, that even they bump into somebody in the lobby. I pray for people in small groups, they'd have some real talks when they get into, into their small group. But what they believe that God's leading to, what you're leading them to next. Our Father, I pray if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you as Savior, you put your hand on them so heavy they couldn't bear it. And they have to cry out to your son Jesus. And last week I talked about some unsaved spouses. That might be somebody's unsaved spouse. Maybe they're watching online or maybe they're sitting in this room right now. God, I pray you put your hand on their heart in this moment and say, it's you, it's you, it's your time to come and call them to you. And I feel like they're not ready. They'll never have it all together. That's does not clean up your life. That's not how you get ready. Say, I'm gonna put my hope in Jesus. Call upon Jesus to be your Savior. Some of you need to be baptized. Take that next step of faith, like jumping on the plane, taking that step of faith. You don't know what it's going to be like. You know what's going to happen. Maybe you've got some fears. But ultimately, you fear God more than you fear man. And Father, I pray there's some here that need to repent. I pray that in this moment will be a time of repentance for them. That You haven't been Lord. They blamed you and been angry at you for suffering. They haven't realized that you're working through that, that you're actually going to do good, even through the ugliest stuff. And God, I pray you'd work in our hearts in this moment. And some of you need to continue on in prayer. You feel the freedom to do that. And some of you want to stand and worship in a minute. Then you do that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.